Have you ever had somebody make a claim that they had experienced a miraculous event, had seen a miracle? I wonder how you thought about or responded to that claim. Have you ever personally observed something that you thought, I, I think that was a miracle? And I don't mean the kind of miracle like, we had a baby, it's, a, it's miraculous. I mean the kind of thing that is supernatural, extraordinary, not typical, not common. How have you processed through that experience? Have you ever prayed for a person who is sick and prayed specifically that God would do something supernatural, that he would miraculously heal the person with cancer? I wonder, I wonder how you've processed through those types of miraculous requests. This last week, as I was preparing for the sermon, I had thought I would end up at a different place than where I did in the preparation. And where we're going to land today is a bit on that topic, because I believe that this passage, either directly, that is explicitly, talks about signs, wonders, miracles, gifts of the Holy Spirit, or by necessary inference, tells us how we should think about such things. It provides much help for us today in our understanding the purpose of miracles and thereby what we should think about them moving forward. So here's what we're going to do. I'm going to dive into our text in Hebrews chapter 2. I'm going to read through verses 1 through 9. But we're going to go back to verses 3 and 4. We're going to spend most of our time in the second half of 3 and all of verse 4. And as I was preparing for this, I thought... The more and more that I saw regarding this topic, this idea, and what it's being uh, kind of taught here, the more I thought, I, I really think that this is necessary and helpful for our church and those here to get our minds wrapped around. This, there is a lot of nuttiness, that's a good word for it, a lot of nuttiness regarding uh, the way that people view miracles today. I'm almost out of batteries. I'm going to need two double A's up here. That was my fault for the record, my job to grab batteries. Um, a lot of craziness out there today regarding the way people view miracles. A lot of things that people point to that say are miracles that I think genuinely are not actually miraculous. There are a lot of people who point to things that they say that they can accomplish as authenticating of ministries that are leading contrary to the gospel to make us wonder how are we supposed to process such things. Additionally, there are believers, men and women of God, who love the Bible, love Jesus, love God, and wonder how we should think about miracles today. Forgive me for that distraction. As I continue to spend time this week in this particular couple of verses, I was greatly helped by them, and I hope to do the same for you. For anyone who is here with us today, or who will be hearing this sermon who is not a believer, who would not say for themselves, I am a Christian who believes solely in Jesus Christ as my only hope for salvation. If that's not you, if you're saying, I don't believe that, I'm here to just listen. We are very grateful to have you hearing this. We want for you to always be welcome to do that. 
And one thing I want for you to pick up on is how we as Christians submit ourselves to what the Bible says as our final authority on these kind of things. Because I would suspect that you too might wonder how it is that even Christians should or ought to talk about miraculous events. I'm going to read through verses 1 through 9. You can read along with me if you have your Bibles. And then we're going to go back through verses 3 and 4 after I pray. So let's read this out loud and then pray together. Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord, and it was attested to us by those who heard. While God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles, and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. For it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. It has been testified somewhere. What is man that you are mindful of him? Or the son of man that you care for him? You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. But we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. Let's pray. Father, as we read this morning, as we consider these texts, we ask for you to press out any influence that is not of you in our minds, that is of the flesh that is of the world, that is of the devil, that we may only think right and true things. Father, this is a a weighty task for a man to do, but for you it is but a breath. Lord, we ask for you to send your spirit to give us guidance, to be helpful for us regarding these texts. Guard us from wrong thinking and use these words to help us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Back to our text for today. Last week, if you were with us, we ended with the first sentence here. How shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord, and it was attested to us by those who heard. It was declared at first by the Lord. Jesus was the first one to declare this gospel. And this is actually the point that the author has been leading up to for most of the last chapter. His point has been that the old covenant was given by angels, but the new covenant was declared from the mouth of God himself. So we trace our gospel news back to Jesus, not just that the gospel is about Jesus, but it was first proclaimed by Jesus. Matthew 4, 17 says that from that time, the beginning of Jesus's ministry, Jesus began to preach saying, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. A few verses later in verse 23 of that same chapter. And he went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. It was declared at first by the Lord. And it was attested to us by those who heard. It was verified. It was confirmed. Guaranteed by other ways that we would use this word. I want you to remember that the author of the book of Hebrews is unnamed. When we went back to the introduction of this this letter, 
I told you that this is one of those letters in the New Testament, one of the books in the Bible, that we're uncertain of exactly who the author is. About half of church history has seen it as Paul. Well, today, plus church history has seen it as Paul. The other half has seen it by various other uh, apostles or those writing on behalf of apostles. But many see in this verse perhaps the most significant evidence against Pauline authorship. Elsewhere, Paul makes it very clear that he did not receive the gospel from others, but from Jesus directly. Look at Galatians 1, 11 through 12. Paul writes, For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel, for I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it. But I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. Because many people stumble over things having to do with textual criticism, that is, the text of the Bible, uh, what, we, what the words say, how they fit with the other parts of the Bible, who the author is, whether or not we can trust him. I don't think that this verse is the dead ringer against Pauline authorship that some think that it is. First, the author does not say that this attestation is the first time that he personally received the gospel. He could mean that those who witnessed Jesus as he was in the act of declaring the gospel to others gave testimony of that public declaration. This is something that most certainly could have been said by the Apostle Paul, who A, never witnessed Jesus declaring the gospel, nor did he observe any miracles, which is an important point he's about to go on to make. And B, he did, in fact, hear from the firsthand witnesses of his earthly ministry, Jesus' earthly ministry. Second, this could just be the author's use of a literary device intended to show that he identifies with the audience, much in the way that we might use the royal we pronouns. We defeated the British in 1776. We defeated them again in 1812. We, We could use that kind of language, not meaning I was there, but we and the royal we. Potentially, he's using this in that kind of way. Lastly, the author has already said in the second verse of this letter, but in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. So whether or not this is a greater point against Pauline authorship or not necessarily one, let the hearer be the judge. But he goes on in verse four to say, while God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. What does it mean that God bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles? Some efforts have been taken to distinguish between signs, wonders, miracles, mighty works, But honestly, these words are used almost interchangeably in the New Testament. And I think, personally, that this is not likely that the New Testament author is meant for us to see a strong distinction between miracles and signs. I don't think that's necessarily the way we should see these things. But we do see miracles and signs in the New Testament, and we see them also in the Old Testament. It should not be surprising to us that God works throughout history miraculously. Now, in order for us to understand what to even do with this kind of passage, we have to ask the question, what is a miracle? Christians throughout the ages have talked about miracles in different ways, tried to explain what we mean by miracle in different ways. In the intro, I was explaining that oftentimes we say things like when we we see a baby born, we say, oh, it's it's just a miracle. Isn't it a miracle? Well, in a sense, yes, it's, it's amazing. I don't think that science can adequately explain how life and thought and value comes into existence 
at conception and then eventually at birth. I don't think it can adequately describe that. But at the same time, it happens all the time. It's true of all of you and every human. So when we say miracle properly, we're probably talking about something beyond what is ordinary. Why don't you try on this definition for miracle and see if this fits. God acting into creation in a way that he does not ordinarily act. Things that are supernatural, not merely natural. Things that are extraordinary, not merely ordinary. Note that these definitions do not fit into a materialistic view. In other words, if somebody was an atheist, holds to a materialistic worldview to say the only thing that exists is matter, matter is what exists. And there's no account given for miraculous events. Everything can be explained by science. Everything has a natural cause, is what they might say. And therefore, there's an utter rejection of miracles. This is why throughout the Bible, even people who generally like the teachings of Jesus, even if they handpick the parts they like, hate his miracles. Because they know that there's something special about a miraculous claim. You see, miracles are often used by God to authenticate, to confirm, to validate an individual or his message. In fact, the more extraordinary the claim, the more likely it would be accompanied by a sign or a wonder. We see this throughout the entire Old Testament. Go back to even the days of Moses, for example, where Moses was being prepared by God to lead the people out of Egypt, and it was going to be a mighty task, and God was going to have to display great powers, works, wonders, signs amongst the people. And Moses was first confronted by God at the burning bush in the wilderness. You might remember this story if you've ever read Exodus 3 and 4 or heard of that story of Moses seeing the burning bush and hearing the voice of God, and God tells him to go to Pharaoh and tell him to let my people go and bring them back out into the wilderness where they may worship me. You might remember what Moses says. Well, what will I say if they doubt that you sent me? How are they going to know that I'm not just saying this, but it was you. It was actually God who sent me. God gives Moses, you might recall, two specific signs. That is, miracles, supernatural events that he may employ to prove that God had sent him. Remember what they were? The first was turning his staff into a serpent. And the second was putting his hand in his cloak, pulling it out, and it was leprous. Putting it back in and pulling it out a second time, and it was healed again. So God God says to Moses, if they don't believe that I sent you, do these miracles. They were designed to authenticate who sent Moses. Consider Elijah. The prophet in the Old Testament, who was during one of the greatest periods of apostasy in Israelite history, where the king and his famed queen Jezebel had set their faces against the prophets of God and had literally slaughtered most of them wholesale. Uh, Few of them, a hundred, were hidden in a cave by by a faithful one to try to preserve and make sure they weren't all wiped out. And all the population of Israel, we hear about again later in uh, later in the Bible. We hear about both in the accounts there and referenced back again in Romans nine. God preserved people. Seven thousand of the who knows hundreds of thousands. Seven were preserved. It's a period of great apostasy. You might remember the story where Elijah goes up onto Mount Carmel and he 
is in a kind of battle against the prophets of Baal and Asherah. There may be 900 prophets standing against him. Remember, there was a test that was to be given. And it was, okay, we're going to build an altar. We're going we're to sacrifice a bull, put it on the altar. And, and, and we're going to call down fire from heaven. And whichever God responds will prove to be true by the call, right? You guys might remember this miracle. Have you ever heard the Bible stories? Have you ever read through these accounts before? And just as a gentleman, Elijah says, you go first. And he passes it off to the prophets of Baal. They stand there. They cry out. They cut themselves. They cry out. They're, they're in a frenzy, a religious frenzy for hours until they're so exhausted. They can't cry out any longer and nothing happens. Elijah then stacks stones on an altar that once had been built there. He rebuilds it with some of the people right there in front of the eyes of those watching. Sacrifices a bull. He covers the entire thing with water to make the miracle that's about to take place even more unlikely. And he says, do it again. And then do it again. He's pouring water all over this thing to make it super unlikely that it could possibly be lit. No man could light that fire now. And he calls down fire from heaven and God burns up the bull, the wood, and even the stones and the dust around it, obliterated. God proved himself true and the testimony of Elijah true in that activity. There are some lesser-known stories in the Old Testament like that of Hezekiah. He was one of the very few godly kings in the Old Testament, the king of Judah. He had done a handful of godly things, and he wasn't perfect, but towards the end of his life, he was dying. And Isaiah, of Isaiah fame, the prophet, comes to him, and he tells him, you're going to die Hezekiah cries out, oh, Lord, can you please cry out to God for me? Pray to God that I will live. I've tried to live faithfully for him. Just pray, please, please. I'm not ready to go. Isaiah prays to God, and God tells Isaiah to tell him, very well, I will grant you 15 more years. So Isaiah prophesies that Hezekiah will live 15 more years. And Isaiah doesn't go, oh, thank you. You're a true prophet. I know that'll happen. He goes, no, 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 no. This is a big ask. I need to see a sign to know that this is true. When they devise a way to determine that it is, in fact, of God, that they looked out at the sundial uh, out in the, the, the yard, and the sundial went backward 10 steps to prove that God was in Isaiah's words. All throughout the Old Testament, over and over and over, I could find story to show that God authenticates his people, his ministers, his prophets, and even just his word through signs. In the New Testament, the ministry of Jesus and his declaration of the gospel was accompanied by signs and wonders and various miracles. It was like all the collection of the stories of the Old Testament came together in Jesus in so many ways, not least of which by all the miracles. Yet again, we see them happening by the hands of Jesus. These miraculous signs were meant to serve as proof that God was with him. And of all the gospel writers, John makes this the clearest for us. Look at a few of these verses. John 5, 36, Jesus says, but the testimony that I have is greater than that of John, John the Baptist, for the works that the father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing, same words here, bear witness about me that the father has sent me. Jesus will go on to say again in John 10, 37 through 38, if I am not doing the works of my father, then do not believe me. But if I do them, Even though you do not believe me, believe the works that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I am in the Father. And these miraculous signs and wonders had precisely that effect. That it proved that Jesus was from God. 
John 3, 1 through 2, another famous account. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, listen to these words, Rabbi, we know that you're a teacher from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. John 9, 33, uh, Jesus heals a man who was born blind. They, everybody's so up in uproar about this. They literally bring him in before a, a court of, of Jewish leaders to have him testify. How can this be? And they're challenging him. And this is, this is what he said. This is what the man testifies about Jesus. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. He must be from God because he does mighty works. It does not sound, in Hebrews 2, 4, where we are right now, it does not sound in this verse, like the miracles being talked about were, were just those being accompanied, accompanied uh, by Jesus' ministry. But that those of the first generation of Christians who attested to the gospel were likewise being authenticated by miracles. As the church spread, miracles were used by God to validate gospel witness. We see this all over the book of Acts. And in fact, if you were to read through the book of Acts from beginning to end in one sitting, it wouldn't take too long, you'll notice the front end is front-loaded with miracles. By the time you get to the end, there's less and less and less. But as the gospel continued to spread out, God used miracles to confirm and authenticate the gospel work. Look at the second half of that verse. While God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. What else accompanies true gospel? Spiritual gifts. The New Testament gives several lists of such gifts. 1 Corinthians 12 is the place that most would go if you just wanted to get a, an understanding of what's being meant by these spiritual gifts. How are we to think about them? There's a, two different lists here in this, this same passage. But it says, now there are varieties of gifts, but the same spirit. And there are varieties of service, but the same Lord. And there are varieties of activities, but it is the same God who empowers them all in everyone. To each is given the manifestation of the spirit for the common good. The Holy Spirit provides spiritual gifts for all Christians, that they would use such gifts for the common good of the church. Did you realize this? God has built you with natural skills and gifts, and even more so, gifted you with spiritual gifts that you would exercise them in service of other Christians. When I was growing up, spiritual gifts assessments were all the rage. If you were a Christian in the 80s and 90s, you might, you might remember that was a time where lots of people were thinking about these things. In fact, these, these tests, these kind of surveys would go out. Uh, churches would go through seasons where they would have everyone in their church kind of look through them. And they were really just the Christian equivalent of Myers-Briggs tests or perhaps even strength finders. Right? Some of you might remember doing some of these. Answer a bunch of questions and try to figure out what's, what's your spiritual gift. Now, I do not mean to mock the effort at all I think that well-meaning Christians were eager to identify their spiritual gifts so that they might better serve their local churches. Amen! But all too often, as these sorts of tests are prone to do, 
They were dependent on one's view of him or herself or another's view of him or herself. And therefore, they were liable to be influenced by the natural self, the flesh. I just cannot imagine the Apostle Paul meant for us to identify such gifts by filling out a questionnaire. These gifts are not imparted to us by natural means, and so we should not expect that they will be identified by natural means. 1 Corinthians 12 will continue on in verse 11 to say, All these are empowered by one and the same Spirit who apportions to each one individually as he wills. Just as our passage in Hebrews today says, it is the Holy Spirit who determines who gets what gifts. You might know that there are people today who believe that in order to prove that you are a Christian, you must demonstrate that you have specific spiritual gifts, most typically speaking in tongues, in order to show that you are actually saved. Some even go so far to say that if you have never exhibited that gift, you're not a real Christian. Some have tried to become even more charitable while still holding on to this view. Well, we have to still affirm some of these people who don't do the talk, speaking in tongues thing. Uh, so let's just invent a new category called carnal Christian. There's the spirit-filled Christians and the carnal Christians. The spirit-filled Christians speak in tongues and do all the things the Bible says to do. But the carnal Christians don't yet have that gift. And so therefore, they are not confirmed by God. This is wicked. God determines who gets which gift. No man can demand that a person prove himself by a miracle. And certainly not as a test of their faith. On a more charitable note, there are some Christians who do think that all the miraculous signs that were experienced by Christians in the first century are still in observance today. Others think that while spiritual gifts are still certainly in operation today, the particular miraculous gift, namely tongues and healing, are no longer for our day, but were uniquely for the first generation of believers, and that those miracles were necessary for the period of time in which the gospel was first being proclaimed and therefore needed divine authentication. I know there are people in our church here, members here, who hold to both sides of that argument. Both of these views are held by people here in our church. But as for this verse, I actually think that this verse, Hebrews 2.4, more favors the latter view. The view that those gifts were for that time. Because it speaks of these signs and wonders in the past tense. You might find help for a view that they continue today. That's called continuationism. Probably will not find it here. Because this verse does not say that they will continue for today. It seems more likely that this verse is pointing to a past tense event. This did happen. This was something that was confirmed back then. I want you to consider the difference between signs... And gifts, because this is what our text has said. God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit. 
There's a difference between the signs and the spiritual gifts. He's saying that those two things are there. Signs and spiritual signs, miracles, wonders, and spiritual gifts. Signs, consider this, are experienced at a moment in time. This is why in the Old Testament, Moses continually tells people to remind their children of the signs and wonders of the Exodus because they were not expected to have experienced them. He doesn't say to the kids, keep experiencing them. He goes, remember that one time that that thing happened because signs happened at a point. Gifts, however, are received and retained. No one at your birthday gives you a gift, you unwrap it, and they go, do you like it? Great. And then you take it from them and bring it back to the store. You get the gift. It's yours now. Perhaps this is why Jesus does not say that the world will know who is a Christian by their miraculous signs, but by the ordinary observance of their extraordinary love for one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Perhaps also, this is why when in the New Testament someone is sick, Christians are not instructed to go hunt down the brother or sister who has the particular gift of healing, but to pray for the one who is sick. And on occasion, take medicine and other ways that might help a person in their ailments. I affirm that either of those views can be held by genuine brothers and sisters seeking to trust the Bible. But this text probably ought not be applied to the view that they continue. I want to give you four points as we close to help answer the question, how should we think about signs and wonders today? How should we think about signs and wonders today? First point, we should not expect to see signs and wonders We should not expect to see signs and wonders. Signs and wonders are, by definition, uncommon. It's what makes them special. If, as the scriptures say, signs and wonders are designed primarily to authenticate gospel witness, then we should not expect to see them every day. In fact, one of the most notable features of miracles, even in the days of the Bible, is that they are rare. That's kind of the point. Consider this for a moment. Because you and I, in our minds, might go back and think through Old Testament Bible stories. We might look at a children's Bible. And every page of the children's Bible points to another miracle. Because those are things that come to mind when we think about the incredible stories of the Old Testament. However, if you were to line up all the believing saints in the Old Testament who had ever lived... And ask for a show of hands as to which of them had personally observed a miracle. You might get one out of ten actually raise their hand. And that includes the generation who lived during the time of the Exodus where every living Jew saw a miracle. You need to understand that hundreds of years passed between miracles, oftentimes in the Old Testament. Clear signs and wonders type of things that people would have been Drawn to. And oftentimes the miracles that are reported in the Old Testament are only observed by one or two people at a time. Who saw Jonah get out of the mouth of the whale? The fish. No one that we know of other than Jonah. When Elijah and then Elisha both raised people from the dead, who saw that? Two, three people? We don't know, but not many, certainly. 
None of you have experienced a sign or a wonder today. I'm going out on a limb here. You probably didn't yesterday. Many of you might even say, along with me, that you have never experienced a sign or a wonder in your entire life, and this should not be faith-damaging for you. As though we're saying, but God, if I'm a Christian, I I need you to to do something miraculous, something that, that everybody around can see is extraordinary. We should not expect to see them, and most certainly may not demand to see them. We do not demand that God works when we speak. You know why? Because we're not witches. We're not like Harry Potter who says a a line or a phrase. If you say it just right, God will call down what we desire. Oftentimes, even in the New Testament, by apostles, they prayed for something that God did not give them. Because it was not in his will that they have that thing. The answer given is not, oh, Paul, you just didn't say the right words. You didn't find the right healer to remove the thorn in the flesh. No, God wanted it there. So number one, we should not expect to see signs and wonders. Number two, be very wary of those who claim to display signs and wonders. Jesus himself warns that many false Christs will come. Even claiming to have done miracles, done, done wonders, mighty, mighty works, mighty deeds. Matthew 24 says this. He says in Matthew chapter 7 that some will be surprised they don't get into heaven because by their observance, they've cast out demons. And they've done many mighty works in your name. Claimed the name of Christ, did things that they and others perceived as mighty works. Jesus said, I never knew you. The purpose of signs and wonders is to be a witness. They declare attest to something. If a person does not have the gospel, they cannot have the genuine witness of true signs and wonders. People, people asked me before, could, could, could a false prophet cast out a demon? No. Jesus says they can't. Jesus says that can't actually happen. He's the one who brings up in the argument with the Pharisees. If I am casting out demons by the power of the devil, how could that even work? The devil can't cast out himself. That's his logic that he's using in his argument. It's not, yeah, devils cast out devils all the time, but just believe me. No. He goes, you guys are fools to think that Satan would set himself against his own house. We should expect to see many false signs, false signs, Wonders, illusory deeds. Watch out for false churches with false leaders who claim miracles but don't have the gospel. They're everywhere. Furthermore, on this point, signs and wonders are subject to testing. Paul writes, do not believe every spirit. Whoa, there are spirits that are going to say things supernaturally that you shouldn't believe. Yeah, don't believe those. He says, test everything, even prophecies. Test them. It does not display a lack of Christian faith for you to doubt claims of signs and wonders. In the New Testament, genuine signs and wonders only ever accompany the declaration of God's word. I want to read for you one one quote here by Matt O'Reilly, who is a commentator for the book of Hebrews. He wrote this in his commentary about this passage. Although the word, the word of the Lord, and the word of God are found in many contexts 
where there is no mention of signs, the signs are never found except in the immediate context of the word. It actually displays a greater faith in the word of God than in men for us to be skeptical of such claims from such leaders. Be very wary of those who claim to display signs and wonders. If you've been a believer for very long, it wouldn't be surprising that you've had many people make claims of miracles in their life. And maybe God did do something supernatural and unexpected and out of the ordinary. He can whenever he chooses. But it is not wrong for you as Christians. And I'm telling you right now, brother, sister, Christians here, be very skeptical of people who make those claims. Especially when it's followed up by, if you gave me more money, I'll do more. Very skeptical of those claims. Because we love the Bible and the God who gives real miracles. That's why. Third point. Signs and wonders do not produce saving faith. I want you to think about this. Signs and wonders do not produce saving faith. I think one of the things that leads Christians to desire signs and wonders is a good impulse. It's a good desire. Because they hope, they expect that if their non-believing friend sees a miracle, they will repent and turn in faith to Jesus. Good impulse, but it's untrue. It's not true. How many people experience Jesus' miracles? What is the one miracle that's recorded in all four Gospels apart from the resurrection? Do you remember? The feeding of the 5,000. How many people were there? 5,000 men. Some people would say if, if that means men and there's also women and children, it could be 10, 15,000, thousands. No one does. At least 5,000 people are all there. Jesus supernaturally, miraculously feeds all of them. What happens when they hear his teaching in the following passages in John chapter 6? They all go away because his teaching is too hard. They don't care about the miracle anymore. His teaching is too hard. How many times did people see miracles of Jesus and turn and walk away? And it certainly is not helped by a greater quantity of miracles displayed. Just one more miracle. Just, just one more miracle. Just one more miracle. Consider Judas. How many miracles did that guy experience? In Luke 16, verses 30 through 31, Jesus tells a parable about the rich man and Lazarus. Uh, he says, Lazarus was a man who was, was a beggar in, in life, and the rich man was a rich man in life. Both of them die. And the, the picture that Jesus gives us of, is of the rich man who goes to Hades. And, and the, the poor man goes to Abraham's bosom. He's literally up in heaven. He's sitting there with Abraham. And, and the, the, the guy in Hades looks over and he cries out. And he says, oh my goodness, I need relief. And at some point in this dialogue, the man who's in Hades says, well, if I can't get out, at least send somebody to my family's home. Tell my father and five brothers. Because if somebody rises from the dead and goes to them, then they'll believe. Do you know what Jesus said? He, 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 said, he puts these, these words in the mouth of Abraham. This is what he says. And he said, this, this is the rich man cries out, no, father Abraham. But if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. They will he said to them, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. What happened when the Pharisees heard that Lazarus, other Lazarus, actually rose from the dead in John 11? They set out to kill him and Jesus. Lazarus was on their most wanted list too. 
In fact, the display of miracles may produce greater judgment for those who observe and then reject them. You might be asking, like, like I would want to know. Wait a second, wait a second. If it doesn't produce saving faith, why would he do them? Like, why would he display them? Not the healing of someone out of compassion. That obviously happens. Someone's sick. They need something, so he heals them. But, but like, feeding the 5,000. They would have survived. They just walked back to town, had been hungry that night, and found something the next day. Why would he even do it then? To proclaim judgment on those who reject him. Look at Jesus' words in Matthew eleven twenty one. 21. Woe to you, Chorazin. That's a city near Galilee. Woe to you, Bethsaida. Same, another city. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, that's an ancient set of cities that were known for their wickedness. If, if, if the works that were done in you, city in Jesus' day, were done way back then, they would have repented. But you didn't. Woe to you. And Jesus goes on to say, your judgment will be greater because you saw the miracles and rejected them. They didn't produce saving faith. They produced greater judgment for those who rejected Jesus. This last week, I watched on video a debate between a couple of atheists and some Christian brothers, James White and Jeff Durbin. I know a handful of you were able to go to attend that event last week. Um, I wasn't able to attend it, but I watched it. One of the atheists presenting the atheist view came unhinged over the course of the debate. His argument devolved into, no joke, prove that your God exists now. Show me a sign. Show me, show me, show me. 200 times maybe said that over the course of the thing. Show me, show me now, show me now, show me now. In the face of the... It's a perfect example of the kind of things... That Jesus talks about. Matthew 4, 7 said this. This is the first thing that went through my mind as I was watching this video. Like, couldn't believe. And then could believe. And then couldn't. You ever been in that? Like, well, I kind of expect it, but it's still crazy to see it still, right? This is what went through my mind first. Jesus said to Satan, who demanded a sign, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. First thing that came to mind. Second verse that came to mind was this. Matthew 12, 38 39. Some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him, saying, teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. Show me, show me, show me. But he answered them, an evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet of Jonah. That is that Jesus will die and he'll be buried for three days and raised as Jonah was three days in the belly of the fish. Signs and wonders do not produce saving faith. This means that if God were to answer your plea, Lord, write lightning in the sky above my non-believing family member's head that says, believe I am God. That might produce further judgment for your friend who continues to reject him. Perhaps the reason that God has not answered your prayer to do the miraculous work is compassion. Fourth thing, final point. Look for God's hand in the ordinary things. If you've been sitting there this whole time and thinking like, man, does this guy not believe that anything supernatural or miraculous happens? Absolutely, I do believe that miracles happen. Absolutely. Our hesitance 
to trust in the vast array of miraculous claims that exist today ought not be because we doubt that God works. We experience the hand of God working all the time in our lives. First and foremost, every believer has experienced a genuine miracle in that you came to new life in Christ. You were dead and are now alive. That is a miracle. It is supernatural. It is extraordinary. It could not and would not have happened in your life unless God intervened. You pray with your family all the time. As a church, we pray. We ask for God to heal. We ask for God to protect people in travels. We ask for God to save our lost friends and family members. We ask for God to provide in seasons of hardship. And he does. We praise him for that provision. It's amazing to me how God works. And oftentimes, in just exactly the right way that we can even see that he answered my prayer and his prayer and her prayer and his prayer and her prayer all at the same time with this amazing, complex answer, God is good. Of course we believe that God works today, that he heals today. We pray for miracles all the time when we're asking for God to act. But we don't expect that we will see the things that were un common even in the new testament we ask by prayer and petition with thanksgiving lord do a work at the end of the day we yield to your will god if you've not experienced new birth new life in christ then not only maybe can you say you've never experienced a miracle But you might not have the eyes to see the kinds of things that are miraculous all around you now. God may be doing things every single day by generally ordinary means just to care for you. How many Christians have you met in your life who, after being saved, have traced back to seasons and periods in their life where they they go, that was really unlikely for that to go well for me, and somehow it did. Or that was really unlikely for it to go poor for me, but everything blew up. And led me ultimately to where I am now, confessing Christ. It's amazing how good works. The other day I'm on Redwood Road, driving down the road, and I, I can see a car getting ready, a, big, a giant truck getting ready to pull out of a business on the right side of the road. I'm in the far right lane. And he's getting ready to pull out, and I see him kind of pulling up to line up right there where he should have stopped right before the lane. And I kind of was watching and judging if he was going to stop. I was going about 40 miles an hour on the Redwood right there. And I, I, I just don't think that the truck driver even saw that I was there or, or thought that the lane I was in was like a shoulder lane, maybe. That's kind of how they respond. Just rolled right straight forward. I mean, just right there. And the speed of it was such that there was no way for me to slam on the brakes. And so I, it was one of those moments where you just had to calculate odds in a, in a momentary second. And later, you think about this kind of stuff. And like in that moment, you're thinking, it's more likely that I'll die if I go forward than if I go like this and hit a car that could be there, right? And so I went, swerved this way. And there was a car just barely behind me. He was able to swerve out of the way. He gave me a nice single finger hand, hand wave as we went by. Um, and barely evaded this major accident. What do we do with events like that? 
It's amazing how we have a paradigm for this. God doesn't look down and go, oh my goodness, whoa, that was close. If you trust in the sovereignty of God, you know that he's working even in those things. Could we call those miracles? Sure you could. Was that super common? Yeah, happens all the time. If you're a believer, you can have eyes for these kinds of things. And you don't have to go crazy and nonsensical in the way that we talk and think about these things in order to make sense of them. If you're not a believer today, you need the miracle of new birth. You need to see the way that we look at the Bible and trust in the Bible and let that be a testimony. The way we love one another, love God and his word. That maybe the reason you're not seeing God working in your life, working all around you, is because you have rejected what he has done. But our good God loves us so much that he sent his only son to die for sinners like you and me. And if you believe in him, you can have eternal life. Your heart will come anew. You'll begin, to be see, you'll begin to see things you didn't think you could see. And, and what might happen for you if, if you embrace new life in Christ is you might begin to see that that big mass that was just crazy believers who did all this nutty, uh, straight uh, uh, kind of televangelism, getting money in order to, to heal people and people falling down and tongues for every person who's a believer. You, you, might, you might realize, oh my goodness, they're not all the same. There's true acts of God and there's false acts of liars claiming that those acts are for God. And to you right now, they might all look the same to you. And it might, might need that you cry out to God in faith that he would give you new life and you would see there's a major difference between the crazy stuff that we see in the world and what God's word says. If you guys would close your eyes and bow your heads, I'd like to just pray and close out our time this morning. Father, you are a good, wonderful God. I pray that you would help us have a right, Bible-honoring, God-exalting, Christ-loving view of these things. Lord, there are so many influences that might get in to try to make us think one way or the other. Let your word be our guide for these kind of things. Father, where there are disagreements clearly under the umbrella of orthodoxy, that we can say we're, we're Christian brothers and sisters here, we have disagreements here. Lord, teach us how to be charitable, generous, loving, respectful of one another with these differing views as we try to understand things that feel complicated to square away with Bible passages and with our experiences. Lord, help us to be loving and honoring in that way. But Lord, protect us from jumping over the guardrail of your word off the cliff and into error as we think about such things. And Lord, to next week, as we, as we continue here, I'm going to ask that, Lord, this week you'd help our minds be prepared for what is being, what is being pointed to with these truths coming, coming in this passage in the book of Hebrews. Father, we love you, and I pray for all those who will hear this, the lost, that they will learn to love and honor you, repent of sins, and turn in faith to you. Those who have already done that, Lord, that we would grow in a love and an honoring and admiration of you that you'd be pleased by all things in Jesus' name. Amen.